This is Jeffrey Sachs, editor of Tradition. Our fall 2022 issue featured a lengthy essay by Rabbi Todd Berman, exploring a six-decade-old critique launched by Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz on Dr. Abraham Joshua Heschel's Theology of Divine Pathos. In brief, the debate centered on Heschel's contention that a prophet reacts to God's emotions, that the Navi is guided by God's own feelings. For Berkowitz, Heschel errs here by aligning himself on the wrong side of the anthropomorphism and anthropopathism debate. Berkowitz was a significant figure in mid-century Orthodox Jewish thought and was an important contributor to our pages. A noteworthy curiosity of Berkowitz's critique of Heschel was its appearance with an editorial note expressing some reservation about his controversial offering, which, quote, evoked sharp differences of opinion among members of our editorial board, on which Berkowitz served as a member at that time. Well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Berman's essay, with its defense of Heschel, similarly evoked sharp differences today among our own readers. Todd Berman joins the Tradition Podcast now to discuss the underpinnings of that original debate between Berkowitz and Heschel, how the Orthodox community's reception of those ideas has evolved in perhaps surprising ways over the decades, and what aroused his interest in this old episode, which turns out to be still quite relevant to contemporary Jewish thought. Berman's essay, Berkowitz, Heschel, and the Heresy of Divine Pathos, along with links to Berkowitz's original 1964 article, the array of reactions generated among our readers, and Berman's response to them, can all be found at traditiononline.org, along with the open access archives of our journal going back to our founding in 1958. Rabbi Todd Berman is the Director of Institutional Advancement and a Ram at Yeshivat Eretz Hatzvi in Jerusalem. Here's our conversation. Welcome to the Tradition Podcast, Rabbi Todd Berman. Well, thank you, Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs. I'm uh, excited to be here. Nice to nice to have you. Your your essay in Tradition's Fall 2022 issue, a rather lengthy essay, I should say. It was lengthy both in terms of the page count, but it was also lengthy in terms of the amount of time that, as an author, you sat and ruminated on it and thought about it and worked on it and drafted it and redrafted it and suffered through an editor's appointed comments and improved it. And we, we got to, I think, a very interesting article um, which generated quite a significant amount of, of interest and response amongst our, our readers. So before we get into the meat of it, t- tell us, l- tell our listeners what was it about this topic, about this 60-plus-year-old uh, uh, debate, discussion, disagreement between these two significant figures of, of Jewish thought in the United States at that moment in the, in the mid-60s, Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz and Rabbi Abraham J. Heschel? What was it about these two figures? Who were they? What were they debating that so interested you that you made this effort to produce this this essay. Well, I'll tell you how I came to the essay. Both Heschel and Berkowitz um, were part of my religious searching experience when I was much younger. 
Um, I would say that I didn't put them down. I would put them, uh, having read a number of their works, uh, especially Heschel more than Berkowitz, but also Berkowitz, I kind of put them down for 20 years. Um, <clears throat> and then I was going through older traditions, having developed, I would say, intellectually, having looked at different areas of Jewish thought, uh, especially I've spent quite a bit of time with Rav Chaim Volodzhin, um, and uh, the Tanya. Not, not one of our authors in tradition. No. no. Um, and then I decided to go through some old traditions, and I came across this, an article by Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz discussing an idea of, of Rabbi Heschel, and I was struck by two aspects of it. I was struck, first and foremost, because there's a disclaimer, as it were, at the beginning of the essay, which shocked me, uh, suggesting the editors were not necessarily comfortable with some of the points that uh, Ray Berkowitz made against Heschel. Even though, in those years, we should note, Berkowitz was a member of our editorial board. <laughs> well, that might have been part of the way he got the essay in, I don't know. Um, and then reading the essay, their essay is kind of broken into two parts. The first part is his discussion of of Heschel's idea of, of divine pathos, which started in his work on his doctorate in Germany. Um, and then um, and then uh, for many years, it clearly was an aspect of Heschel's thought that Heschel took very seriously as fundamental. Um, and the first part of the essay is a very harsh critique of Heschel's ideas. And the second part of the essay, he starts, he, Eliezer Berkowitz, starts with a disclaimer that in order to kind of pacify the other editors, he wanted to discuss how Heschel and people like Rukhain Volodzhin uh, diverge. And as I was reading it, I thought it, that Heschel sounded more like Rukhain Volodzhin than Berkowitz's. Berkowitz was giving him credence to. This really got me excited, um, not necessarily because of the timing, but just it was advantage, you know, it was exciting for me to read this essay. Um, and it kind of sparked me to, to open up their works and review what they had, what they had said and to try and understand why Ray Berkowitz was so upset at Heschel and whether or not Heschel deserved the critique. Um, they were, they were both titans of Jewish thought in America, even though their biographies are very similar, which is kind of interesting. Heschel was born in 1907, and uh, and if I recall correctly, and Eliezer Berkowitz was born a year later. Um, in different worlds, Heschel came from a Hasidic world. Eliezer Berkowitz came from Austrian Jewish education, but they both landed in the University of Berlin almost the same time. Um, they did like a joint program uh, Berkowitz went to the Hillsheimer Seminary pretty much the same time that Heschel went to the, the Hochschule, which was the program for the Wissenschaft. Um, they clearly knew each other in Germany. In fact, at one point, people had asked, um, had asked Rabbi Heschel to write an essay on what the Talmud was, and he suggested that Berkowitz write it instead. So they clearly knew each other in Germany. They have very similar backgrounds in that not only did they land in the University of Berlin, do doctorate at the University of Berlin, they had both escaped the Nazis, whereas uh, uh, they both landed themselves in England. 
Heschel was only in England for a very brief period of time. He had relatives there and landed there, but his hopes were to get to America. He came to the United States in 1940, went to HUC. Eliezer Berkowitz landed in England, was in England for about five years, then went to Australia. Uh, then he eventually made it to the United States um, in 1950. At that time, Heschel had moved from HUC to New York in 1945 to Jewish Theological Seminary. So at that time, they were both writing in America. Um, they had come to a world which was very different for them. They both wrote in similar areas, whereas Eliezer Berkowitz was more a classic halachist and wrote in the areas of halacha, especially later on when he was in Israel. Um, in America, he wrote on philosophy, theology, the Bible, uh, and Heschel was doing the same types of things. So in a certain sense, they were very similar, um, but uh, the critique that Berkowitz laid against Heschel's ideas was so harsh, he basically accused him of Christian theology, not Jewish theology. Um, and that I found jarring, and that pushed me to, to look at Heschel's roots. So let's, let's talk for a moment about this idea of divine pathos. Heschel writes that a Navi, a prophet, feels God's feelings. Now, right away, this is a red flag for Berkowitz because it implies that God has has feelings, has, has, has emotions. Heschel goes on, the prophets react to, to divine pathos with sympathy for God. Sympathy is a feeling which feels the feeling to which it reacts. Because of this sympathy, the prophet is guided not by what he feels, but rather by what God feels. In moments of intense sympathy for God, the prophet is moved by the pathos of God. So now explain explain to us why this was so well both why this was so problematic for 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 Berkowitz and this idea of divine pathos what does it contribute to to Jewish thought what what's been its kind of reception history in the 60 or 70 years since Heschel was was advancing it a, f a few pieces well we'll talk first about I'll discuss Heschel the reception um, it's interesting your prior editor, uh, Rabbi Carmi, mentioned that he felt, he wrote an essay on regarding Heschel's idea of divine pathos. <clears throat> I, sh I should mention that as part of the cluster of content that, uh, that we uh, shared on the, on the internet, on the website, traditiononline.org, I wrote a kind of uh, summary piece, a bibliographical piece, summing up and linking to the very many different points of discussion around this article over the course of many decades from the time it appeared till till today uh one is in uh, actually when berkowitz's essay was republished in one of his books that book was reviewed twice in our pages something that i don't think we would <laughs> we would do today and both of those authors are my esteemed uh, uh predecessor uh rabbi shalom karmi and professor stephen katz uh, both review the book, and they both focus on this particular topic of the divine, the divine pathos. So readers can can visit all of this uh, supplementary content to your essay on our website. So, as Carmi suggests, he felt that this is one of Heschel's this idea of divine pathos that somehow or other God emits, creates. Um, an emotional feeling which is received by the prophet and the prophet is in needs to react to that 
the prophet is supposed to feel with God, the pain of the Shekhinah, as it were, and we'll come back to that in a minute, uh, feel what God wants and then reacts to it and then spreads God's word, as it were. Um, the the uh, as Carmi as Rabbi Carmi said, he felt this was one of Heschel's great gifts to uh, to Jewish thought. Um, what I think frightened Rabbi Berkovitz, and he speaks about this, um, is he felt that 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 Heschel went too far, almost humanizing. Uh, um, humanizing God, um, not just anthropomorphism, but an anthro, I can never pronounce the word, but anthro, uh, um, prophecy, I can never pronounce that word. <laughs> I can write Describing it emotions <laughs> to God. Um, and he felt that it sounds like the, the veil between the human and the divine for Heschel was permeable such that, that the human could actually touch God and as as it were impact God as it were and he felt that was a uh, destroyed the entire house of cards of Jewish philosophy and that God is impassable God can't be changed etc. Um, when I was reading Heschel, it seemed to me that he was uh, connecting, maybe even communicating certain classic ideas in Kabbalah in a new type of new type of language. And when I delved in, you know, Katz, Katz's article on uh, on Elza Berkowitz's republication of several essays of five essays uh, was extremely harsh, uh, very critical. Um, he praised Berkowitz for. Um, delving into these topics and he critiqued him for what he felt was not not accurate analysis of the subject matter um i think others also criticized berkowitz uh, alan brill criticized him for his interpretations of rukhain velazhen um and others and i i felt those critiques were were on the mark and that the uh the especially i found strange was the claim that heschel's attitude was christian now, it's not the first time the Kabbalists have been accused of tilting towards Christianity. Uh, certainly, there are medieval. Or to, or to ideas that Like similar. The yeah. uh, famous Chuva by, which I, I quote in one of the footnotes, I think, by uh, Rav Yaakov Ben Shesha, the Rivash, uh, uh, suggesting that a philosopher friend accused his friend the Kabbalist of being, quote unquote, worse than the, the Christians. They only have three gods, you have ten gods. Um, and that's the Rivash. So it's not surprising Kabbalists have been accused of this forever. I think what Heschel tried to do, first, Heschel tried to strip away a Maimonidean veil, which he felt covered all of Jewish thought. Now, he was no alien to the Rambam. One of his first works was a biography of the Rambam that he didn't necessarily want to write, but he was solicited to write and kind of pushed to write. Um, uh, and he had taught Rambam at JTS for many years. He certainly knew the Rambam very well, but he writes explicitly that he feels um, that the Rambam, that the Rambam, was giving a non-Jewish approach to Torah, a Greek view, and he was searching for the authentic, what he felt was the authentic Jewish view, which I think stemmed more from the history of Kabbalah, etc. Um, and when I read Berkowitz, so I felt that Berkowitz was also falling into this trap of feeling the Rambam almost defined Jewish thought, whereas Heschel really tied into many classic works of Kabbalah, perhaps communicating them or translating them for an American, a modern American audience, but that's what it sounded like. So Heschel 
well, one thing that our green spelled out is that when he was young and had a chavruta with Heschel, he found Heschel was invested and taken with this work uh, by Ibn Gabay, um, the Avodah HaKodesh. And I had read the Avodah HaKodesh and decided to go back into it. And lo and behold, some of the ideas that Heschel seemed to be suggesting appeared in this classic work of Kabbalah. The Avodah HaKodesh is a work which summarizes Kabbalah in a way up to the Ari and not beyond the Ari. Um, and the ideas of touching God, which he discusses in the first section and discusses at length the idea that humans can have some sort of impact. Now, in the end of Avodah the last section, he talks about God as the unmoved mover and almost in, in Rambam terms. But this has been a paradox within Kabbalistic thought the, and one way to resolve that is something which Heschel writes about in many of his works is the idea of the Shekhinah, that there is there is the God, the Ainsof, as it were, the untouchable, the unknowable, and that there's a manifestation of the divine, which we call the Shekhinah, which permeates rabbinic literature. And that aspect is what human beings can kind of relate to. And uh, it seemed to me that Berkowitz was pushing Heschel where he didn't want to go. Um, and that critique of Heschel, I thought, was really unfair. Um, he wanted to suggest, and Heschel says over and over again, I'm not talking about hitting, touching the Ain Sof. I'm not talking about going to those places beyond where one can go and talk about, which all the Kabbalists talk about. So unless one is prepared to kind of uh, distance oneself from an entire aspect of Jewish tradition of Kabbalah, I think it's it's difficult to say that Heschel's without that is out out of those bounds. So, so let's think a little bit about what this uh, what this debate meant back in the nineteen sixties and what it means today, and how each of these two sides has fared. In the nineteen sixties, tradition publishes this essay, penned by one of its own editorial board members who was uh, very distinctly identified as a, as a significant Orthodox thinker. Later in his career, Berkowitz would advance certain halachic positions, which, let's say, put him a little bit at odds with the mainstream Orthodox rabbinic establishment, but that hasn't happened yet at this point in his, in his career. Heschel is very significantly identified, perhaps the leading figure within the world of conservative Jewish thought. He's a very significant player at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and you know this is a period already when there is significant tensions between these two streams of American, of American Judaism. But yet, the article penned by the Orthodox thinker, member of our board, published in Tradition's Pages, comes with this disclaimer, uh, I presume, we presume, penned by our, our then longtime editor, Rabbi Dr. Walter Wurzberger, that uh, we don't completely agree with what Berkowitz says. There is some irony here that in, in the 1960s, there should be some kind of, uh, you know, uh, apology, as it were, to, to Heschel. And today, many years later, so many different changes in the shape of Jewish life of Jewish culture, of Jewish thought, of ideas that come in and out of fashion, many of Heschel's ideas are so much more mainstream, particularly when we consider 
the rise of new forms of Jewish spirituality, neo-Hasidism. These were topics that were recently explored in an Orthodox Forum volume edited by our friend Shlomo Zukier, an excellent book which was reviewed in our most recent issue that really does try to uh, get at some of these trends which have arisen in, in Orthodoxy both here in Israel and in North America and elsewhere, which have really been mainstreamed within Orthodoxy and in many ways are, are aligned with are aligned with, with Heschel's views here. So how does this how does this happen? What's the, there's something very ironic going on, and there's also the curiosities of how ideas move in and out of fashion. Well, so I want to caution a little bit about Heschel in regards to his experience at the Jewish Theological Seminary in the 1950s. Uh, he did arrive in 1945 at the kind of the end of. Um, the tenure of Mordechai Kaplan, both Kaplan and Heschel were a little bit almost quasi-tolerated at, at JTS, which is kind of a funny thing. Um, what I mean by that is, we'll leave Kaplan aside for a second, but Heschel's chair was in uh, Jewish thought and mysticism. But at JTS in the 1940s and 50s, they didn't like the word mysticism. So he wasn't even allowed to teach any courses on mysticism. Uh, he taught for years a course on Kuzari one day a week and a course on the guys perplexed another day of the week. And he had students and was writing quite a bit. Uh, but the, uh, the real gem at JTS was the Talmud department led by Saul Lieberman. Um, and uh, Heschel even once asked for a larger office because he was cramped in a small small quarters. And when Louis Finkelstein retired as the chancellor, he had hoped that Gerson Cohen would allow him an open office. There was an, o an office that come open. Um, and Cohen had told him to speak to Finkelstein. Finkelstein said, well, that was reserved for the Tom department. So Heschel, Heschel really became... I think became uh, famous when when he started being involved in social activism in the 1960s. That's when he really became a, a huge name, a famous picture with him and Martin walking with Martin Luther King Jr., um, which he kind of staged, but we'll, <laughs> we'll leave that. Um, but in those times, it's hard to say who was Orthodox, who was not. There were definitely teams. What I mean by that is, Heschel, Heschel, an oddity of Heschel was his decision not to go to, say, the Hiddelsheimer Seminary, but to go to the Hochschule and kind of attach himself to the Wissenschaft science of Judaism people. Uh, but in his his life, he was more or less d lived, a, 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 you know, a life that would be defined as modern Orthodox, um, and as well as many of the professors at JTS did. I know Lawrence Cap uh, Lawrence Coburn had suggested, um, and he even wrote a letter, but we had a, a, a nice discussion about it, that part of the issues with Berkowitz's harsh critique might play into the struggle between conservative conservatism and orthodoxy at the time yeah. at the time and that fit in very much with uh with a feeling that that orthodoxy needed to fight back against conservative judaism on a on a theological plane it is interesting the the conservative movement by and large i think tied into this feeling of being anti-kabbalah certainly the professors at jts and anti-kabbalah anti-mysticism a more rational approach towards judaism 
And indeed, the the pendulum has kind of started to switch, whereas openness towards Hasidut and openness openness to to Kabbalah, and neo Hasidism has really become very popular now. And in which indeed Heschel's works, it's fascinating. In Israel, the Heschel's works are being published. In fact, even published by places like Magid Koren, which is classically an Orthodox press, uh, but they're putting out some of his some of his works. So I think the Berkowitz was pulled towards this, uh, might have been pulled towards this struggle between Orthodoxy and Conservative Judaism. Berkowitz also, I, I don't know if this played a role. It's interesting that Berkowitz was in Chicago. And in a certain sense, when Heschel came to America, he went to HUC because they saved him as well as several other scholars. But he always wanted to be in New York because New York was kind of where... The the it, exactly. So I don't know if that also played into... Berkowitz was kind of in the diaspora of Chicago in a way. Um, and uh, and that might have played a role also that he wanted to be part of, uh, be considered a... you know, uh, And he's in thinker. Chicago after moving up from Boston. Right. Was even further out. Right. Um, so I don't know how much of, uh, how, you know, I don't like to say that it was really just a struggle between conservatism and orthodoxy. I think Berkowitz took it very, very seriously. He thought that Heschel went too far and he did not, Berkowitz, see, although Berkowitz wrote some things that sound a bit similar to Heschel and God and, uh, God, man and history, much more open to, uh, to something like pathos, much more open to the prophets having a feeling about God of some sort. I think he thought that this Kabbalistic stuff was too far and rationalism was was the real way of Judaism and indeed Heschel in a certain sense I think is having a, a renaissance right because of trends in contemporary right contemporary Jewish mysticism and spiritualism and, and, and other things right and, you know these are the great uh, tensions that run throughout Jewish thought from the early medieval period until our day and as some ideas are ascendant others become more reactionary and I guess that the episode that we're exploring is is one moment of these two things. It's fascinating. Moshe Dell wrote an article in the 1980s um, in regards to called Maimonides. It's in uh, it's in one of the editions put out by Harvard University, Maimonides and Kabbalah. And he has a throwaway line there where he felt that after certainly after the time of the Ramban in the late 13th century, um, Kabbalah started to become the dominant theological frame that most Jews thought about until the until the advent of of modernity but in eastern europe everyone was a kabbalist of some sort hasidut had had certainly taken over and that was heschel's world where he came from he always writes he writes in several places that he had this experience of growing up with spiritually invested people and that affected his whole life this powerful spirituality um so i think that played a major role as berkowitz the austrian litvak in a certain sense evoking classic perhaps classic uh misnagid tropes felt that uh that 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 he had gone uh they actually gone too far. You mentioned a moment ago uh, Lawrence Cobrin, my my very dear and precious uh, the dean. We call him the dean of the Tradition Editorial Board because uh, Larry Cobrin has been serving on our board for I think uh, about sixty five years. He's he's been with us since Rabbi Lamb founded the journal, and he's a very uh, valued member of our of our team. I, I call him the consigliere, the the counselor at, at large to, to everything we do. 
And uh, since you did resurface this historical episode from our pages, uh, and, and he was around then, he, he shared with us in a, in a letter which was published uh, online that he had no specific memories of these editorial conversations at the time that led to this disclaimer. And, you know, we, we must admit that sometimes things, editors, I'll, I'll, I'll lift the hood and take you behind the scenes. Sometimes editors make statements in the name of the editorial board when in fact, uh, when in fact, it's not quite such a democratic uh, process. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Norman. I mean, Norman Lamb, not you know a, a colossal figure. Norman Lamb and Marvin Fox, a professor of philosophy, had both written had both, yeah. articles on Heschel. Um, Norman Lamb was slightly was slightly critical, but they were critical in a, a more open perspective, right. Right. Um, which you know when you juxtapose their articles to to Berkowitz, it kind of leaps out at you that it, it, it hard to understand the, uh, the, the strong reaction that Berkowitz had. So, uh, so Larry in his, in his piece wonders out loud, what would be a contemporary analog to traditions editorial note, uh, defending implicitly defending Heschel against Berkowitz and what would be today's philosophical issue that would generate a similar debate on, on whether or not to publish something or to do so with a disclaimer. So without getting into contemporary uh, Jewish politics, uh, which we have plenty of, um, uh, it, it's difficult to think of something on this level of discussion where we would, we would be able to you know, put down a time capsule that some future researcher in 60 years from now would be able to excavate and write a, an essay so thoroughly and so deeply and, and use it as a kind of lens to get into some crucial issue in Jewish thought and then generate a kind of debate amongst his or her peers as, as your article did. But in fact, your article did generate some debate, aside from my short piece, which really just synthesized uh, everything else that had been written on the topic in our pages, you know, to lay it out before our readers that want to do an even deeper dive than the deep dive that you did. And uh, Coburn's piece, which kind of gave a snapshot of the moment in the 1960s, which he well remembers, there were a few other responses that were, frankly, more critical of not of your scholarship, but of your point of view in defending Heschel against, against Berkowitz, which, after all, you were more or less doing what Rabbi Wurzberger had done 60 years earlier. So what was some of that contemporary uh, response to, to your piece? Where do you think that was coming from? And how did you respond to your critics? Um, well, so David Curran, um, which you uh, published in, uh, in, um, in tradition and, um, and probably Rafi Ice. Right, and Rafi Ice. So both of them, I think came from a similar perspective in trying to defend Berkowitz um, David Kerwin pushed pushed I thought he did it did a a valiant job of trying to synthesize what Berkowitz said in this essay attacking Heschel to some of the things that he had earlier said in um, God Man and History um, and suggesting that that Berkowitz had a very was similar to Heschel, but a very thin line thought Heschel had just crossed over the line. Um, I, number one, 
I kind of felt, well, I did quote some of the, the quotations already from uh, Godman History in my essay. It's hard. I found the two pieces hard to synthesize. Um, it wasn't clear to me that Berkowitz had a single position. And if he did, like uh, like Kerwin suggests, that single position was so thin, the line between how far he was allowing one to go theologically close to God and, and, and how one was not, I just found very difficult to maintain. Um, again, I thought the Berkowitz's critique was failed on two pieces. One, I thought he suggested that Heschel said things which Heschel explicitly over and over again says he's not saying. That he thought that Heschel was talking about going the essence of God, the Ainsof of God, whatever it is, beyond certain Kabbalists. And um, Heschel explicitly said, pull back from that. Um, and two, I felt that some of his readings of, of Kabbalah were unfair. Raphael's critique I think primarily stems from the fact that he felt, or he writes, that Berkowitz distanced himself from Kabbalah in general, which is fine. One can make that choice, but that's not a fair critique of people who adopt, which was mainstream theology for most Jews in Eastern Europe for 400 years. So it's hard to, uh, I, I didn't feel that critique was very, was very uh, fair on my article because Heschel was simply tying in, as I, I would like to suggest, tying into classic, a uh, classic Hasid, Hasidut, and and to say that all Hasidut is therefore a problem, is uh, is something which uh, a fight which was waged perhaps in the 18th century and lost, like more or less, even though those who waged it were Kabbalists as well. Um, without diving too too much into, people forget that the Vilna Gaon, who was the great critic of Hasidut himself was a noted Kabbalist and his theology was Kabbalistic. He just disagreed with certain aspects of Hasidut. But in the, in the contemporary aspect, I'm not a Kerwin's. I thought Kerwin spelled it out clearer, but I don't think he did a successful job, at least in my estimation of, of, uh, of defending, uh, defending Berkowitz because he gave Berkowitz such a, again, such a paper thin, uh, thin line of where the theologian is allowed to go, and I felt that that doesn't uh, doesn't really hold up. It's not it's really not fair. One theologian can have a position, and so can another. But to to automatically nullify a theologian because he doesn't hold your exact line, I felt was too uh, was too too much. I, I mentioned when we when we began that you worked on this essay for a very long time. I'm not sure that all of our even our most dedicated readers fully understand and appreciate. <laughs> what goes into producing a serious article for, for tradition or any other serious scholarly scholarly journal, particularly one, this, this article is almost 40 pages long. It's a bit longer than what we typically, what we typically publish. Um, and, and again, this is something that you've been thinking about, as you said, since your student days, and you've turned your attention to it quite rigorously over the last number of years, and and like I said, you 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 worked on it. I if I recall, for about four years, uh, actively worked on it from until it was until it was finally until it was finally published. What did you learn along the way? Here's a question that's occupied you for a long time. It's obviously something that interests you deeply, and something that you think has has uh, meaning for our 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 lived lives as thinking religious spiritual beings but when you do this kind of 
deep analysis, this full immersion into a topic, and the writing and the editing and having to withstand the critiques of annoying editors and readers and respondents, etc. What did you learn from all of this? So before I answer your question, I just want to say about the critiques of the editors, I really appreciated them because I felt they made the piece much better. Gentle, um, gentle listener, don't think that was a scripted line. No, not at all. I really did. I told my family that. Um, the original, the original feedback I got was four pages, single space, uh, single spaced, but I took it very seriously. Um, I, I did not have a strong, uh, fun, fun, uh, foundation Hasidic thought. And when I, uh, I had some, some amount of, uh, experience in Kabbalah, I studied Kabbalah in graduate school, uh, but this this uh, when we say I worked on it for so many years. What I did was I really felt I needed to have the background and the Kabbalistic text and the Hasidic text, um, and for me, it opened up a whole new view of what it means to be a religious person. Uh, I, uh, I I fell in love with Heschel's writings when again when I was in my twenties, um, I ate up like God in Search of Man. Man is not alone. Uh, Heschel's uh, philosophy of Judaism or his theology of Judaism works. Um, had dabbled a little bit in the Sabbath is probably his most famous work and probably the first work that I read. But I had not read his entire corpus. I kind of felt that I needed to have a strong, a very strong understanding of what Heschel was saying across the board. And a, a wonderful aspect of Heschel's writing is I think that Heschel... Um, Heschel's extremely consistent across the board. Not all thinkers are, but the same issues that bothered him when he was a university student and he wrote in his poems uh, come out throughout the years. He was struggling with with this kind of uh, uh, balance of Hasidut and modernity. And for me, this opened up entire new doors. I've spent a lot of time learning Hasidut, learning the academic aspect of Hasidut, uh, trying to learn the Hasidic writings as well. And, uh, and for me, this was just a wonderful experience of seeing a whole new facet of what it means to relate to God, what it means to, to pray, what it means to experience the world. And I think Heschel has so much of value to say, and it, it, it frightens me and makes you know, perhaps he makes me a little sad that within the world of traditional Jewish thought, there kind of, people put up, um, sometimes put up red lines that are not necessarily needed. So yeah, Heschel was a JTS as well as Professor Lieberman was, and you know what I was a religionist Shear at Hartzion, he had no problem quoting quoting uh, Professor Lieberman's works. Um, and but some reason, oh, once you're tarred with uh, within orthodoxy, the scarlet letter of them, uh, I think people are afraid to like dabble those in are, it. Those are surely uh, lines of demarcation which have become more sharply drawn in our day than they were. Which is interesting in, in Israel, in right? In Israel, people don't have the same the same background. They don't have the same past. They don't have the same associations with at all political field. So, for instance, my son-in-law was in a Yeshua Hesder, and there was a class on Heschel's thought. Who who would have who would have thought? Um, but for me, I think it really opened up uh, vistas of of relating to God in a new way and thinking about God in a new way. And... Like, like you, like you, I also came to Jewish commitment and Jewish learning a little bit later than some as a as a young as a relatively young man um and when i was making my way in 
uh, maybe this says more about my own orientations and interests and uh, than than it does about yours. When I was a young man, uh, very puzzled by the integrity of halacha, how the Talmud works, how this how the system works. A very well intentioned uh, NCSY advisor uh, gave me a copy of Berkowitz's "Not in Heaven." Lo me in Hebrew, not in heaven, the nature and function of halakha, which was a, a, a transformational read for me. It really helped me understand how the whole system works and why it's reasonable to commit oneself to the halakhic system, the halakhic principles, and, uh, and, to, and to observance. So each of these great thinkers has left behind uh, you know, uh, uh, enduring legacies uh, which I think continue to have uh, continue to have uh, impact on what he's doing. By this point in the 1980s, when when this uh, fellow uh, gifted me this book, he he was careful to say, but you know, this rabbi, not everything he writes is is 100% uh, acceptable or kosher. Some some kind of disclaimer even then. So so poor Berkowitz has has been suffering from this. Uh, what's interesting is, as you said, both Berkowitz and Heschel now so many decades later. Uh, there's this ongoing, renewed interest in their work, in publishing their works and translating their works. And that, I think, says something about both of them and the two sides of this issue and so many other issues that they, that they stood on. The essay is Berkowitz, Heschel, and the Heresy of Divine Pathos, which appeared in Tradition's Fall 2022 issue, which is available open access on traditiononline.org along with a cluster of other content which was shared directly to our website. Responses to your essay, Rabbi Berman, and your response to your critics, as well as some of the other historical detritus uh, that was left behind in the wake <laughs> of, this, of this debate. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you. It's fun. Okay.